Hi, um, I'm, I'm Matt. I'm one of the members here at Magdalen Road, and uh, I'm going to start us with a new series uh, on the run-up to Easter. What we're going to be doing is we're going to follow the story of the events leading up to Jesus's death. We're going to follow them as they're told by Luke, who's one of his earliest followers. And perhaps I don't know where you are this morning. Perhaps you're wondering what, what a tragic story about the the murder of a great but misunderstood moral teacher could possibly have to do with you. Maybe that's where you are, or maybe you feel you're so familiar with these stories, these chapters in Jesus's life, that you're just finding it hard to imagine there could be anything worth looking at these again for. Well, here's why I want you to listen today, because this story, if it's true, and I believe it is, this story shows us an incredibly courageous Jesus. He's determined to die, and that determination needs some explaining. So let's start the story together, and we'll see what we find. We're going we're gonna to look at quite a long section of Luke's text, so we're going to take it in bite-sized pieces. This is parent training coming in handy. I'm going to feed it to you in malleable portions so you can get through and not choke. Um, we're going to find Luke. Uh, can you find Luke chapter 22? That's on page 1057 um, in our Bibles. It's Luke chapter 22, and we're going to pick up the story just before Jesus' last meal, right after um, Judas has agreed to betray him. So in Luke 22, we're going to start reading today um, in verse 7. We'll just read a little bit. So from verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Well, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So so they prepared the Passover. So it all starts pretty innocuously there with preparations for a meal. Jesus sends Peter and John, his kind of right-hand men, to go and get things set. And this Passover meal is a special Jewish tradition. Uh, In fact, it's probably one of the key Jewish traditions, maybe the key tradition in all of Judaism. And why is it so significant? It's so significant because it's a reminder of the origin of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel. It points back to the dramatic climax of that confrontation between God and Pharaoh. I don't know if you know the story, but it points to the night when Pharaoh was finally broken with that dreadful tenth plague, the death of all the firstborns. But the Israelites, they were passed over in this whole thing, and that's where the name comes from. So the Passover meal was designed to help the Jews remember and remind themselves of what God's done and how he had brought them out of Egypt and delivering them from slavery. If you feel like you need a, a recap or a reminder of that, the Prince of Egypt is actually a great way to get um, think of the details of the story told to you again. Now, remember what's happened right before this meal. So right before this meal, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. And it might look like Jesus has got no idea whatsoever what's going on. It might look like, you know, he's just cracking on with his normal religious calendar. It's the next thing that happens, isn't it? He's blithely unaware of what's coming. But actually, there are the first signals, even in this little bit here, that Jesus is seeing around the corner. Well, Jesus sends Peter and John to go and get things sorted. It actually seems like Jesus has already been doing some preparing of his own. See, there's a guest room already arranged. 
Now, some people think Jesus knew how dangerous it was. He knew how much trouble he was in with the Pharisees. He knew how people were getting ready to go for him. And so maybe this is kind of a Mission Impossible style secret meeting. You know, there's a code arranged and you follow the code and you get to some secret room so nobody would know where he was, so nothing could go wrong. Well, maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe it's, maybe it's more amazing than that. Maybe Jesus just supernaturally knows there'll be a guy with a water jar and his master will just happen to have a spare room. They'll just happen to be set and empty and they can go and use that. I wonder if that's more the sense you get when you read verse 13. It says they found it just like he had told them. I think that's kind of more the sense that's there. I mean, you have to remember, this is the key Jewish festival and there they are in Jerusalem, the key Jewish city. It's going to be hoaching. So the idea that there's a free room kicking around at the last minute, it's quite something, actually. Whether it's supernatural, whether it's just human foresight, it's clear that Jesus has been looking ahead. He's been looking ahead to the meal. But it doesn't stop there. So let's pick things up again at verse 14 and read a little bit more. In verse 14 it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, it's, it's not just the meal, then, that Jesus has been looking ahead to. He's seeing further ahead, right? What does he say here? He says, Before I suffer. He says, My body, as he breaks the bread, My blood poured out for you, he says. So what is Jesus looking ahead to? How far around the corner is he seeing? He doesn't just have the evening meal in mind all the time. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows he's going to die. But let's read on because there's more. So Jesus continues at verse 21. The hand of him who is going to betray me. It's with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. See, Jesus doesn't just know he's going to die. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. And not betrayed by just anyone. He's going to be betrayed by one of his inner circle of twelve. One of his friends. Someone he's been sat around the campfire with, chatting late into the evening for three years. One of his closest friends is going to betray him turn on him and hand him over to a horrible death. If you take a moment to reflect on that, can you picture being with your friends, close friends, friends you maybe share confidences with? Can you imagine who those people are? Now imagine one of them turning on you, selling you out, stitching you up. What do you feel? How would Jesus feel? Because he was human. He is human. He feels things too. Betrayed by one of his closest friends and he knew it was coming. And he knew who it was. Now could he have done anything about it? Oh yeah. Imagine the scene there in the room. Okay, You're there in the room as they begin to question each other. 
Is it true? Is it, is it you? Is it, is it me? All it would have taken would be for Jesus to point and say, Judas, Judas, it's you. I know your plan. Get out. And if the others didn't get him before he got to the door, that would be that. That would be that. Jesus could have stopped it, cut the legs out from under the plan. But he didn't. So Jesus knew he was going to die. Now he knew he was going to betray, but there's, there's more still. So go back again to verse 31. And we'll pick things up. That's over the page. In verse 31 it says, Jesus speaking, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. It's as if Jesus is pulling the curtain back further and further, isn't he? He doesn't just have a plan for dinner or a sense that things are headed somewhere bad for him or a suspicion maybe Judas is up to something. Jesus knows what's coming and he knows what's coming in precise detail. Painfully precise detail, doesn't he? He knows how many cockcrows it's going to be before Peter denies he ever knew Jesus. Now, it seems like Peter's got some idea of where it's going too. See, Peter mentions prison. Peter even mentions death as future possibilities where he thinks it might go. But see how insufficient that human resolve is? How much that bluster turns out to be worth? It's going to be over. It's all going to be over before the cock crows. That's such a short time. Where are we in the timeline? This is evening. They're having the evening meal. When does the cock crow? In the morning. This is just hours we're talking about here. Peter's not going to last long. Can you picture being Peter in the middle of this? And you've given up so much to follow Jesus. You walked away from your job and it was a fine job. You walked away from your family and your home. You see amazing things right in front of you. These past three years, you've heard Jesus talk again and again about the remarkable things that are coming. And now your master, your teacher, your friend, he tells you, you're going to let me down. You protest, surely not. But Jesus looks you in the eye. And he gives you details. He gives you details with absolute certainty. It's like the rug is pulled from under you. The other disciples must be staring, wondering, how could you be such a loser? So not only is Jesus going to be betrayed by one of his friends, but he's going to be deserted by the rest. In the middle of this horror that's coming, he's going to be left all alone to face the end. Let's uh, carry on reading. Let's pick up in verse 35. Jesus moves the conversation on. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. 
And the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. What's this fighting talk that's showing up all of a sudden? Is Jesus really going to try and turn his ragtag bag of disciples into a fighting force, into an army overnight? Is he turning his back on the whole turning the other cheek thing? Is he going to embrace violence instead? That's just completely missing the point of what he's saying here. Because how many swords are enough? Two. Two swords against the whole of this Jewish establishment. Not just that. Against the whole of the Roman authorities. You've got the Roman army there. And two swords is enough. Jesus is not trying to get the disciples ready to fight. The key here is the quote that Jesus uses. If you look at verse 37, you can see there's something in quote marks there. And in the original language, that quote is really tightly connected to what goes before. So it's like Jesus is saying, buy a sword because he was numbered with the transgressors. Those two are connected like that. So the only reason the disciples need swords is because Jesus is going to be identified as a transgressor, as a a lawbreaker, as a rebel. The whole sword thing is just symbolic. And you can see that, actually. If you go on in the narrative, you see what happens. There's the sword and the ear thing, and Jesus clears up that mess. The point, the focus here, is that Jesus is going to be numbered with the transgressors. He's going to be seen and treated as a lawbreaker, as a criminal. This Jesus who's been walking around healing people, this Jesus who's been walking around teaching these lovely ways to behave towards each other, this Jesus who's been busy feeding massive crowds, And he's going to be identified as a rebel, a lawbreaker. So let's recap. Jesus knew what was coming, right? He knew about dinner. Actually, he knew about his suffering and his death. Actually, he knew about his betrayal, which was going to lead there. Actually, he knew about his desertion, which was going to happen in the middle of it. Actually, he knew how he'd be labeled as an enemy of all that's right. He knew he would be killed with people shouting, crucify him. Well, I have one question out of all of this. Why did he do it? Why? When Jesus knew exactly what was coming, when he knew who it was coming through, when he knew how it was coming, when he could easily have changed it. You see, Jesus could easily have changed it. He's no helpless victim in this drama. That's entirely the wrong way to read it. You can't write him off as unfortunate collateral damage in some bigger story. Like I said, he could have have outed Judas and dealt with the problem there. I mean, there were two swords at hand. Maybe it could have all been finished. He could have have fled Jerusalem and escaped that night. He's, He's escaped before from hostile crowds and just walked away. Or he could have just said no. At any time, anywhere, all the way up to the bitter end, he could have just said no and put a stop to it. He could have rolled up the skies, turned out the sun, and ended it with one powerful word. But he didn't. Why? Well, the more observant amongst you will have noticed we missed a section. And I think we can start from that to see exactly why. I think actually, once you get it, it's all over this narrative once you're looking. So let's go back and read the bit we skipped. It starts at verse 24. It's the bottom. 
10.57. Just as the disciples are trying to figure out who's going to betray, listen to what happens. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. (coughs) Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you, you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table, but I'm among you? As one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. And sit on thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the disciples search for a betrayer. Is it you? Is it me? Well somehow. That's turned itself into a bragging contest over who's the best. Who's the greatest. Perhaps we can slightly understand how that would happen. I could never do that. I'm totally committed. No, you're not as committed as me. I'm, I'm more committed than you. I followed Jesus from the beginning. I'm his closest disciple. Perhaps that's how it runs. But Jesus turns all of that on his head. He says, I'm the greatest of them all. But I'm among you as one who serves. One who serves. And that's the key. Why didn't Jesus turn back? Why didn't he turn away? Why didn't Jesus escape? To serve them. To serve us. How's he going to serve us? By dying? What kind of service is that? What help is that? Well, Jesus didn't just see his death coming. He saw further ahead still. He saw what his death would accomplish And with his death, he does us this ultimate service. Now, roll the tape back in your heads of what's going on this evening. Back to the Passover meal we read about. Now, what are they remembering the Passover? They're remembering God's powerful deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. The key moment in the whole thing is this tenth plague. The death of the firstborn. The angel of death passes over the Israelite homes. And did you notice something peculiar Jesus said about the Passover? Back in verse 16. In verse 16, Jesus says, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Fulfillment of the Passover. Now, that bears thinking about for a minute because the Passover meal points backwards to what's already done. Surely it's already fulfilled, isn't it? Judgment has passed over the Israelites and they have been delivered. That story, that chapter, is finished. So what is Jesus meaning when he says it's actually yet to find its fulfillment? It means that deliverance, as great as it was, that is not the end of the story. In fact, that deliverance, it was great, but it's just a shadow. A shadow of the real story, the reality. The even greater reality is still there in the future to come. And it's going to find its fulfillment in just a few hours, Passover. Now, I don't know whether you've seen the way Passover connects with Jesus' death. Let me walk you through it. I think it's amazingly clear. At that first Passover, on the night of that tenth dreadful plague, well, Israel were given some strange instructions. They were to take a lamb and to kill it, and then 
spread its blood on the bits around the doors to their houses. And here's what they were told about that blood. It's from Exodus back in the beginning of the Bible in chapter 12. And the Lord is speaking and he says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, do you see what's going on there? So the blood of the lamb is just a, it's a sign on account of which this plague, on account of which this plague which God describes as judgment, will pass over the Israelites. So blood is shed and judgment passes over. And what was it Jesus said after the meal, over the cup? He said, my blood poured out for you, blood will be shed again. And judgment is going to pass over again and God's people will be delivered again. And this time, this time it's going to be the fulfillment, the ultimate deliverance. So when Jesus says Passover has a greater fulfillment coming, what he's pointing forward to is his death, his death in our place. How his blood is going to allow judgment to pass over us. See, Jesus doesn't just know about betrayal and desertion and suffering and death that's down the road. He knows about deliverance that's down the road too. And that's the key thing I want us to see today. Jesus knew what was coming and he chose to go through it. He chose to go through it. Why? To rescue us. Wind the tape forward to that very last bit of conversation. The bit about the swords. We'll find the same thing again. In verse 37 there, Jesus quotes something. He quotes something from the Old Testament. And he was numbered with the transgressors. It's quite a mysterious sounding phrase at first. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. He says, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Well, what is written about him? What was Jesus referring to there? The verse he's quoted actually comes out of a a very famous passage in the Old Testament. He quotes just a tiny bit of it. But it's like pulling on a thread. You pull and pull and pull and pull and pull and you've got the whole thing in a pile at your feet. It's like, it's like looking through a keyhole, a tiny, tiny aperture, but you get open out to the view of the whole thing, seeing what's beyond. He's inviting us. He's inviting his disciples to pull on this thread and to recognize what is it that's written about Jesus there. So what is written? What is it that Jesus knows is reaching its fulfillment? Well, the disciples would have known what he was quoting. It's a very famous passage. They would have known what went along with it as well. And we need to look at it too to understand Jesus properly. So can you flick with me to where that comes from? That's Isaiah chapter 53. So flick backwards to Isaiah chapter 53. That's on page 741 in the church Bibles. Now Isaiah one of the greatest writing prophets of Israel, probably the greatest. And the words we're looking at here are very old. They come from hundreds of years before Jesus. But Jesus says they're written about him. Well, let's read it and see what it says. Now, we could read a really long section here, but I'm just going to pick some bits focused near where Jesus quoted. So look at verse 6, Isaiah 53, 6. It says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned 
turned to our own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or skip down to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. That is, their guilt. Therefore I'll give him a portion among the great. He'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the quote Jesus used. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So what is it that's written about Jesus here? Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the guilt of us all. Or verse 10, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Or verse 11, he will bear their iniquities, their sins. Or verse 12, he bore the sin of many. See, Jesus doesn't just know betrayal, desertion, suffering and death. He knows the deliverance it will accomplish for us. He takes it for us in our place, rescues it from us. And that's why Jesus, even though he knew what was coming, chose to go through it all. Think of the chef looking through the onion tears onto the casserole that will come. Or the student sweating their way through the exams for the hope of what those results will bring. Or the pregnant woman looking through the pain of birth to the joy of a child. You see, we're told Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. But I think it's important we see this is not just through gritted teeth. This is not just with reluctance. It's not just mm, weighing it up, not sure which way it should go. No, look at the way Jesus expresses himself. Back to Luke 22, last flick. Back to Luke 22 again. I should have marked my page. Here we are. There in verse 15, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. And of course, Jesus has in view what's going to follow. The original language goes to great pains to express just how much it is that Jesus wanted to do this. With great longing, I greatly longed to. Jesus really wants to do this despite knowing in detail how terrible and how awful it's going to get. And why is that? For you, that's why. Jesus wanted to do it for you, to rescue you, and that's the joy set before him, you. Rescued from judgment you should face, punishment he took in your place, strange though it might seem, Jesus loves you that much. Messed up? Insignificant? Wrongdoing even? But Jesus loves you. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, the Bible says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not an accident, not a misunderstanding, not reluctant obedience. What is it that's coming? A demonstration of God's love for you. That's what's ahead. Well, so what? 
What difference does this make to you? What difference does this make to us? Maybe you're like one of the disciples in our story today. Maybe you're cluelessly watching Jesus break this bread and pour this wine just having a meal. Maybe you're hearing Jesus accuse one of his insiders of being a betrayer and thinking, "Mm, well, maybe, just business as usual. Maybe you're watching Peter's face fall as Jesus tells about his coming failure and just looking down on him as an inferior. I wouldn't mess up like that. Maybe you're fighting over who scored the most points with Jesus so you can tell other people what to do in his church, but you're totally missing the point. We're missing what Jesus is shouting at us through this drama unfolding here. He's shouting that he loves you. He loves you enough to see what's coming and to go through it anyway. He's about to have his body broken. He's about to have his blood poured out and he walks right into it. Is it like you're out on that Valentine's date and the lights are low? The music is soft and your partner leans forward to share something critical from their heart with you. And you're just busy fiddling on your phone with Facebook. Is it like your child comes running up to you and jumps into your arms with their eyes sparkling, longing to tell you about the amazing things that happen in their day and you just want to get home and get the telly on? Is that you? Well, here's my plea for you today. I want you to feel it. To feel how much God loves you, let the power of this demonstration of God's love for you hit you. This is the most important thing that's ever gone on in the whole world and it changes everything. You've got to get this and have it get you. It needs to burn inside you. Jesus loves you. He chose to go to the cross for you, incredible as that seems. Now we need to get a hold of that and let everything else fade into the background. Begin to get this clear. And then it will turn our lives upside down. Just like it did for these disciples here, once they got it. Well, maybe for you it's not just that you miss the impact of these familiar stories, that you know what's going to happen, but actually, maybe you're more like a Peter. Maybe you feel you let the side down. Maybe you're standing in the corner, ashamed, not able to lift your eyes to Jesus. Feeling worthless and useless, just knowing what a massive failure you are. Is that you today? Maybe it was something pretty minor. Maybe it was something massive. Catastrophic even. Woman, I do not know him. That's what Peter would say late that same night. But do you know what? Jesus knew it was coming with Peter that evening. He tells Peter so. And then what does he do? Well, Peter, if you're going to mess up that badly, sorry, get out. I don't want people like you. No. See, Jesus knows Peter is going to fail. He knows it's going to be catastrophic. And yet still, 
Jesus goes to the cross for his friend. He longed to eat that last meal with his friend. His friend who's going to completely fail him. He not only goes to the cross for Peter, but he still has work for him to do. After he's turned back, Peter's going to have a key role in Jesus' new community. So have you blown it with God? Have you messed up so bad it's hard to look him in the face? Do you doubt he could want to have anything to do with you? Do you feel like you might just get to tag along, but that's as far as it's going to go? Well, we need to look here and get a hold of this because he knew who you were. He knew what you were going to do. He knew what was coming and he did it anyway. He did it anyway because he loves you, even you. He doesn't send Peter off the pitch in shame to sit on the bench for the rest of the match. No, he has work for him to do, critical work. So if you've let God down... Don't have that sideline you. Instead, you can use this fact of his love for you in the face of it to fuel you. You see, it shows you even more how much he loves you. This extravagant grace. Have you messed up? He's got extravagant grace for you. And if you know that, it drives you into action. Just like it does with Peter. Where do you find Peter? Is he at the back as the story rolls on? Is he on the sides? Is he silent in the corner? Peter's at the front. Peter takes the lead. Peter stands up and speaks. He takes risks. He's beaten. Eventually, he will die for this. So don't have this sideline you. Have it drive you instead. Or maybe you're neither of these people today. Maybe you're just a a bystander. Maybe you're looking in through the window and um, you're wondering what on earth is going on in that room? There's peculiar stuff happening. There's bread, there's wine. I've got no idea. Well, if that's you this morning, the thing I want you to get is that Jesus isn't some tragically misunderstood victim. You can't read him that way. The story doesn't give you any space for that. He's not powerless. He's not a victim. In the bigger story, Jesus knew exactly what was coming and he chose to do it. He did it in order to rescue you as well. He longs for you. And even today, he invites you in to come and share that meal. Now, uh, I would really be delighted to talk to you if you want to talk some more. I'll be at the front after the service, easily identifiable. Um, But don't let it stop there. Don't just put Jesus aside as tragically misunderstood, accidental victim. There's no room for that in the story. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. And he chose the cross because he loves us.